Well, we're coming up on Easter, but it almost feels like Christmas out there, doesn't it? A little cool today, but nice and warm in here. But I'm excited to uh, jump into the Word together. So we're going to be in 2 Kings again today. And then next week, we're going to take a break and be in Revelation 20 as we meditate on the resurrection. But I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. We're going to study the second half of this chapter today. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can take one of the pew Bibles there in front of you. It's page 292. Uh, page 292. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible yourself, we'd love for you to keep this and read it. Well, as we continue our series this morning, we're going to be diving into a family this morning, and it's one big dysfunctional family. Uh, now, there are a lot of dysfunctional families in Scripture, but this morning we're going to be looking at one in particular. And as we track through the dysfunction in this family, the evil, the corruption there, We're going to see this central truth that in spite of how evil we are, God shows mercy to sinful people for the sake of Jesus Christ, the son of David. God shows mercy for the sake of Jesus Christ. So if you have a copy of God's word there, we're going to be in 2 Kings 8. We're going to start reading in verse 16 and just read down to verse 18. 1 Kings 8, 16. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, we've been tracking for some time through the history of the nation of Israel. As we look at this map here, we've been engaged for the last couple of weeks with conflict for the city in the far right corner of this map in Damascus. And so for a number of chapters now, we've been focused on Damascus and then the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember for generations now, the kingdom has been split into northern and southern kingdom. And so we've been traveling between the capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria, and the capital of Syria, which is Damascus. Well, this week, our focus is going to shift a little bit. We're going to shift into the southern kingdom of Judah and the capital of Jerusalem. And so we've got all of these factors going on here, but it's a little bit different focus than what we've got going on in the bigger context. It's been a number of years ago now. I was an adult uh, when I first read it. I think, I don't know, it came out probably when I was an adult, and for a long time I thought it was a kid's story, but then eventually I picked it up and read through Harry Potter. Now I've read it several times. One of my favorite series, but I can remember the first time reading it, books one, two, three, four, five, six, coming to book seven and thinking, like, there is absolutely no way that she is going to be able to tie all of these threads together by the end of this book, and yet somehow she did it. Uh, still my favorite series to this day. Well, today's passage is, is sort of like that. It's going to introduce some threads to us. It's really an introduction, so it kind of stands on its own. We're going to look at the lives of two kings, but it's an introduction to what comes next. So chapters 9, 10, and 11 are going to be kind of the conclusion of the story, but we're not going to find that out for several weeks. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are really all about ridding the world of this curse that is the family of Ahab. And so now the poison of Ahab has drifted from the northern kingdom down into the southern kingdom of Judah. But it's going to be several weeks, so it's a little bit like, I don't know, you've got a good book, you're reading it before bed. And as you're working through it, it takes you several weeks to read through, and you can't find out the end until the end. So today we're going to introduce a couple threads, but we're not going to see where those tie in for several weeks. 
So with this groundwork laid, we're going to jump now into verse 16, where we see profound depths of evil. Verse 16 introduces us, or rather reintroduces us, to someone we've seen before, Joram, the king of Israel. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. Now, before we go any further, we've got to note a couple of levels of possible confusion here. First of all, the king of Israel is named Joram. And the king of Judah is named Jehoram. And sometimes Jehoram, the king of Judah, goes by Joram. And sometimes Joram, the king of Israel, goes by Jehoram. So you've got Joram, Jehoram of Israel, Joram, Jehoram of Judah, which makes for quite a confusing mess. And so as we walk through here, we've got to note from the context who we're talking about. It's a little bit like John and Jonathan or Joshua, Joshua, Mike, Michael. And in verses 16 to 18, we're primarily focused on Jehoram of Judah. So remember, we're moving into the southern kingdom focused on Judah here for just this week. Now, he reigns eight years in Judah, a relatively short reign compared to, say, David's 40 years or Solomon's 40 years or King Manasseh's 55 years. But eight years is two presidential terms, and for some times that feels like a really long time. A lot can change in eight years. It can change the trajectory of a nation. Jehoram's dad, Jehoshaphat, was a relatively godly king. It's been a number of weeks ago now, we were in 1 Kings chapter 22, where the text describes Jehoshaphat as a faithful, who was, as a faithful king who was sincere in his devotion and yet incomplete, 1 Kings twenty two forty three, 43. Jehoshaphat did not turn aside from doing what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet the high places were not taken away, and Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. So scripture commends Jehoshaphat, but also adds a little bit of an asterisk to his reign, sort of like an asterisk in the steroid era of baseball to records. And we find a big asterisk in 2 Chronicles 18, verse 1. Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made not just an alliance, but a marriage alliance with Ahab. Well, those chickens that we find there in 2 Chronicles 18 come home to roost here in 2 Kings 8, verse 18. Jehoram walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, it may not jump out at us right away, but remember, we have been focused on the northern kingdom of Israel, and now just for a moment we're jumping to Judah because this is a new, deeper level of failure in Judah. I mean, we've seen idolatry in Judah before, but this is a new low. In fact, Judah's idolatry is now worse than Israel's. We've met Jehoram of Israel before. 2 Kings 3 tells us that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother. So he's bad, but he's not as bad as Ahab. He put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. At the same time, he clung to the sin of the first king of the northern kingdom. He clung to the sin of Jeroboam, son of Naboth. When the 12 tribes split into two kingdoms, southern kingdom is ruled by Rehoboam. Rehoboam is a much smaller kingdom, but he has the advantage of the capital city, Jerusalem, and the temple where God's people go to worship. 
When the kingdom split, Jeroboam, northern kingdom, is nervous about this. He's nervous that he'll lose influence as people continue to move to Jerusalem to worship. And over time, the kingdom will reunite. So he builds two altars in Israel, the northern kingdom. One in the south and one in the north at Dan and Bethel. To sort of keep the people within his borders. And at these two places of worship, they erected golden calves. They're repeating the sins that God's people had committed at Mount Sinai way back in the days of Moses. Well, Jeroboam and Ahab then become sort of paradigms or points of comparison. So you have Jeroboam, he built these altars north and south for the worship of the golden calf, but it's, it's sort of like the syncretistic worship, bringing together elements of paganism, but claiming to be worshiping the Lord. Ahab, on the other hand, doesn't even pretend. He just brings Baal, the Canaanite god, in, and they worship him. And over time, you've got Jeroboam, you've got Ahab, and they become points of comparison. Jeroboam commits this syncretism. Ahab brings in this pagan idolatry. And so as you read through the kings, you'll often see the evil kings compared to these two. Both are idolatrous, but Baal worship, what Ahab is doing, is an added layer of idolatry. So Jehoshaphat, remember Jehoshaphat, he's a largely faithful king, but he had his son marry Ahab's daughter, a Baal worshiper. Well, you track down a few years, and now his son is also a Baal worshiper. So we've got the king of Judah now walking in the ways of Ahab. So the king of Israel is just committing Israelite sins, but now the king of Judah is committing Canaanite sin. It's a whole another level of evil. Now, why does this happen? Verse 18 for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Now, this isn't the only time we see this sort of thing in Scripture. Remember Samson? Samson, who loved Delilah, he, that we see the same pattern in his life, repeatedly loving people who loved idolatry. Even the wisest Israelite king, Solomon, failed when it came to marriage alliances. First Kings 11 tells us King Solomon loved many foreign women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these women in love, and his wives turned away his heart. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. But this isn't just Old Testament. We see this teaching in the New Testament. We come to 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? God's word teaches us we shouldn't marry non-Christians. Not only because there might be disconnects in our relationship. Not only because, I don't know, we might want to raise our kids differently. But also because ultimately it can threaten our own soul. Our hearts can be drawn away from the Lord. So you shouldn't date or marry non-Christians. Young people, guard your heart when it comes to relationships. Seek someone who loves Christ passionately and lives out that love and faithful commitment in a local church. If you want to find someone who will love their spouse faithfully, find someone who loves Christ and his spouse faithfully. So we find these new depths of evil, and they pass from Jehoram to his son Ahaziah. Let's jump now to verse 25. So down several verses to verse 25. In the twelfth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, 
Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was a granddaughter of King Omri, king of Israel. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. Well, the parallels between Jehoram and Ahaziah are unmistakable. Jehoram's idolatry was linked to Ahab by marriage, and so now is Ahaziah's, verse 27. He also walked in the way of Ahab and did what was evil, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. So a marriage alliance begun two generations before, sealed one generation before, assures that this generation did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we prize individual accomplishment and sort of can-do-it attitude. And we're so individualistic in our culture that we don't often think about the generational consequences of sin. The Lord can redeem any person in any situation. But God's Word clearly teaches there are ongoing consequences for sin. As I think about my own family, I think about my great-grandfather, whom I never met. He was a drunkard and an abusive man. My Grandfather grew up hiding in the fields from his dad. Well, my great-grandfather's sin then passed to my grandfather, who was a marginally better person, but also an addict and abusive. He also happened to be a deacon and Sunday school superintendent in a Southern Baptist church. He was able to hide it from the world outside, but not at home. And as I think about his children... By God's grace, my grandfather was ultimately genuinely converted late in his life in the 70s, around the time. I don't remember the man he was because by the time I knew him, really, he had become a Christian. He was a different person. But the consequences of his sin and his children has resulted in many fractured and broken relationships and even, frankly, among people in my generation. I mean, my great-grandfather, who I never met, affecting people that I know and love, generational consequences for generational sin. Now, all sins aren't that extensive, but all sin has consequences that we can't anticipate. You can choose to sin, but you can't choose the consequences. There's no way you can anticipate all the consequences. So how do we deal with the reality of the consequences of sin? We run to Christ. He's not just a ticket out of hell. He redeems us from sin in a way that converts our entire nature. The evidence of the gospel is a seed planted deep in someone's life that grows into the fruit of a new creation flowing out in the way we live. Okay, to think back to our earlier conversation. Got it. Don't marry Ahab's daughter. Fine. But who makes the best spouse? Not just someone who you think will love you, but someone who will love Christ. That person makes the best spouse. And how do you know if that person loves Christ, do they love the bride of Christ? For better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health. I mean, God loves the church. Jesus gave his life for it, so we should love the church too. And this doesn't mean a sort of at-will contract where we show up as long as we get what we want. 
It's a sacrificial love that means being part of a family. You see people, people do this. They, they, they commit to marriage, and they imagine that marriage is going to be the answer to every dream they've ever had. And it may be day one, or it may be after the honeymoon, but at some point they realize it's really not about satisfying every dream I've ever had. In fact, in this give-and-take relationship, there's a lot more give than I would like. And over time, you realize that marriage is about sacrificial love. It's about dying to yourself. It's about giving yourself in love for someone else. And the church is a lot like that too. Where we don't come with demands or a list of things where we demand to be served, but we recognize we're here to serve. I mean, I'm only, I don't know, 15 and a half years into it. Donnie and Sylvia, talk to them. They're in it 59 years. But I'm telling you, if you go into marriage realizing it's about dying to yourself and loving and serving the other person, you'll be a lot happier than if you come in with your list of demands. And the same thing is true in any relationship. We don't see the church, the bride of Christ, primarily as an organization that we patronize as long as we get what we're looking for. It's the family of God we love and live and move about us and we think about as if we're connected vitally to a community and a family where we're giving ourselves a sacrificial love for others. It's not about what we do as who we are. And from who we are, we're connected to Jesus Christ, the vine, and, and then out for the vine, grow these relationships and these ministries. This is a radically different vision than a sort of loosely connected list of services and programs that give us what we want. It's dying to ourselves in love for Christ's bride. We see profound depths of evil in these two kings. And this evil produces parallel disasters in leadership. You can imagine that these guys aren't going to be great kings. Well, let's see how this plays itself out. Pick up now in verse 20. In his days, King Jehoram's days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram, same guy, now he's calling him Joram, passed over to Zair with all his chariots and rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So verses 20 to 24, remember for us the kind of failure that Jehoram is remembered for. You may remember from the book of Genesis that the Edomites are descendants of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. You can find the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25 to 32. Those two brothers engage often in bitter conflict, and it's true for the people of God and the Edomites as well. And so there's this disaster in Jehoram's life. By the time we get to the nation of Israel, the Israelites and the Edomites have a long history of conflict. Edom down here to the southeast of Israel, Numbers 20 tells us, as the Israelites are on their way to the promised land, they're traveling from Egypt to Canaan, they try to pass through Edom. But the king of Edom won't let them travel through, so they have to go around another way to get up to Canaan. 
Israel's first king, Saul, led the first campaign of the nation against the Edomites. But it wasn't until Israel's second king, David, that they actually conquered them. And then to keep the peace there, he set up outposts in Israel, or in Edom, to ensure their compliance with Israel. Well, those glory days of David and and outposts in, in Edom, they're a distant memory. The nation has split, and the weakened southern kingdom has no prayer at all of keeping Edom underhand. Verse 21 tells us that Jehoram, now they're calling him Joram, same guy, attacked the Edomites, but after attacking them, he fled home in disgrace. He lost. And that's it. That's what we know about him. Joram dies and he sleeps with his fathers in the city of David. But that's not quite it. Second Chronicles 21 tells us how Jehoram died. And it's a horrible, shameful death. Second Chronicles 21.18, The Lord struck Jehoram in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his fathers. He departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the king. So he's buried in the city, but he's not allowed to be buried with the kings. No one likes Jehoram. The king with no honor in life is accorded none in death. And no one is sad that he's gone. Well, what about Ahaziah? Let's pick up now in verse 28. Ahaziah went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Is-Syria at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Now that's a cliffhanger. That's a thread we're not going to see until a few weeks out from now. But we're going to pause there and end at the end of this chapter. So Ahaziah repeats the mistakes of his grandfather in making an alliance with Israel. Israel's continuing its war with Syria. Up to this point, for four decades, 40 years, they've been battling Ben-Hadad. Now, we saw last week, it's a new king, King Hazael. Same thing, new wars, new problems. And this chapter closes with an ominous note. Jehoram of Judah went down to see Joram in Jezreel because he was sick. Now, it's a relatively innocuous comment. But it's a cliffhanger because you won't find out why he's going there, why that writer tells us this until the end of chapter 9. Ahaziah reigns less than a year. This visit will lead to his assassination. By the end of the next chapter, both Joram and Ahaziah will be dead. It's something we've seen a number of times in First and Second Kings is that godly leadership is a blessing from the Lord. And that its absence is a form of God's judgment. The presence of faithful, godly, spirit-filled leadership is nothing to take for granted. It's the exception for both Israel and Judah. And as we come to the New Testament, we see the ministry of leadership expanded through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So men who lead churches are to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom, according to Acts chapter 6 and Ephesians 5. In God's Word, the presence of godly men leading is a blessing. And the absence of these kind of men is a curse. We see this in the days of the judges, in the days of the divided kingdom, and then throughout Israel's history. But we don't just have to see this in Israel, 
doing. I mean, men, the temptation is very present for us to neglect our spiritual responsibilities and let, you know, the ladies take care of it. It's tempting to let wives and moms lead spiritually at home. Often they're very sensitive to the Lord and have a desire to do that. Or at church, maybe we step back and let them, let them do it. But what God says over and over in his word is that we should use our God-given gifts. It's our responsibility to bless and love and serve those under our care, whether it's at home or at church. So dad, don't step back. Don't be absent. You can see it over and over again. Families where mom has a heart to serve the Lord and be plugged into the life of the church and where dad doesn't, it is nearly impossible. But a father committed passionately loving, serving, following Christ, giving his life for Christ and his church, will be a father that leads his family to love Christ too. Men, do not concede this responsibility to your wife or mother. It's not that they cannot do it. It's not that they're less gifted. It's just that somehow in the created order that God designed, men must be committed to these things. It is not something we can concede. What's the flip side of godly leadership. It's godly followership, right? I mean, you can't have leaders without followers. We see this throughout the history of Israel too. I mean, because sometimes God blesses Israel with godly leaders, like Moses, leading the people out of Israel, and God's people just flourishing and being so happy that they have such a godly leader, right? No, what do they do? They complain over and over. They want Pharaoh, they complain about his leadership. And then, you know, we get through Moses and Joshua and the judges, and then they're like, we want a king. Well, why do they want a king? God tells us very clearly in 1 Samuel, it's because they want to be like the other nations. A king is for them an idol. Because who is their king? The king of kings. And yet they want to be like these other nations, so they get King Saul. Godly leadership is a gift from God, but it's a gift that God's people are responsible to respond to, to submit to. Now, this isn't just an Old Testament concept. There are a lot of places you can go in the New Testament to see this too. Not with kings and nations, but with shepherds and churches. 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. Or Acts 20, verse 28, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Or Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them. But one of the best texts on Christian leadership is one of the most simple. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Follow me as I follow Christ. Because ultimately, it's not about following a human being. It's about following Jesus Christ. So whether it comes to life, marriage, or church, the best way to pursue Christ is to find a leader following hard after Christ and follow that person to Christ. Jehoram and Ahaziah didn't happen in a vacuum. They happened in a nation that has not once, not twice, but dozens upon dozens of times rejected godly leadership. God gave them godly leaders but they rejected time after time godly leadership. Oh, friends, let's be the kind of people that follow godly leadership to Christ. Let's be the kind of people who are more concerned with following Jesus than our 401k or our kids 529 or our house or our car or our boat. 
Let's be a church where it's a joy for shepherds to follow Christ because sheep follow shepherds and shepherds follow Christ. Well, as we tracked through this passage, we've jumped around a little bit. And perhaps you've astutely noted by now that there's one verse we haven't read. Verse 19. We're going to go back now and pick up verse 19 because it's the key upon which this entire passage hangs. And to get there, we're going to pick up in verse 18. So let's read now verses 18 and 19. And Jehoram walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. I mean, what profound depths of mercy. I mean, 2 Kings 8.19 is like this bright, shining jewel in a dung heap. I mean, look at what's going on around it. It's filth. It's evil. It's failure. And then you've got this note. They've got out-and-out paganism, and it's not seeping into Judah. It's being led by the leaders, by the highest office of the land. I mean, how does God view the worship of idols? The Israelites have already seen a vivid picture of this, and we have too. Do you remember 1 Kings 18, Mount Carmel? Prophets of Baal? Fire coming down from heaven, consuming the sacrifice? 1 Kings 18 tells us, The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. A glorious moment. But do you remember what happens next? 1 Kings 18.40, Elijah said to the people, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. False worship deserves God's judgment. And if any nation has earned judgment, it's Judah under Jehoram. And yet, verse 19 the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. What an astounding picture of the mercy and grace of God. Why wouldn't God destroy Judah? Was it for the sake of the people? No. Was it for the sake of the king? No. Was it even for the sake of faithful prophet Elisha? No. The Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David since he promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. The Lord didn't destroy Judah because the son of David, the greater king of Israel, is coming. He preserves the line of redemption. God made a promise to King David, but that promise didn't come fulfilled for hundreds of years. It doesn't rest on David's faithfulness. If you read about David, he's not an idolater like these guys, but he's not a success. He commits adultery. And murder, and he compounds it with failures as a father and as a grandfather. You look at the way he treats his adult children. It's terrible. David is a failure, yet the promise doesn't rest on David's faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of the greater David to come. Jesus Christ, the son of David, is coming. So we flip forward pages in our Bible and centuries in time when we come to Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. 
that son is coming. And Matthew one twenty one tells us that Jesus Christ, the son of David, came to save his people from their sins. I mean, our community is filled with people who believe in an afterlife, who believe in Jesus' family and country, and yet don't actually know Christ. They don't live out the Bible's instructions. We don't live as if we're followers of Christ, but, but our city increasingly isn't full of just cultural Christians, people who know something about what it means to put on these cultural trappings. It's increasingly secularized and post-Christian. But if I tell someone, 70 and up, that I'm a pastor, they're like, oh, that is great. If I say it to someone 50 and under, it's like, conversation stopper. Okay, you're one of those. See you later. It's a different world. But the antidote for people who think they're Christians and yet don't actually know Christ, and those who think that Christianity is the problem, who think it's the great evil in the world, the antidote is the same thing. It's repentance and faith in Christ. It's trusting Jesus, the Son of David. It's believing that He is the Redeemer who came for the sins of the world. It's believing that He lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose from the dead. It's leaning into Him with saving faith that changes who you are from the inside out. It doesn't leave you the same. It's recognizing that apart from Jesus Christ, the Son of David, we all deserve what those prophets on Mount Carmel got. We all deserve to die. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the payment for this sin is death. We all deserve death. You see, in the end, God doesn't show mercy because we deserve it. He shows it for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning, without a relationship with Jesus, the only hope for mercy is to turn from your sin and trust him. Would you do that this morning? God calls us all to respond to his word, so we're going to take a moment now to respond to the word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then we'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, David's greater son, who came in love so that we might have life with you. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has yet to place his or her faith in Christ that they would do that today. Lord, help us as your people be the kind of people that follow those who follow Christ, that gladly submit to and follow. Lord, I pray for us as a church that you will grow us increasingly into the image of Jesus that the character of Christ, the love and the mercy of grace that we see in your word would mark us. That people would know that you, we are your disciples because we love one another. 
And Lord, I pray that you'll protect us from the judgment as a nation, as a church, as a community of ungodly leadership. Lord, I pray that you will bless this congregation with men who are full of the spirit and of wisdom, those who follow Christ passionately, that our homes would be full of husbands and fathers who love and lead their families to love and follow Christ. Lord, as we see the effects of generational sin, would you protect us from falling? Lord, like Paul, we're all the chief of sinners, and there but for the grace of God go I. Lord, would you help us be warned? And Lord, I pray that you'll bring fresh life, fresh revival to us as a congregation. I pray this in Jesus' name.